Today, I'm lucky enough to speak with Dean Lori Santos. Dean Santos grew up in Massachusetts and spent her undergraduate years at Harvard University, where she studied psychology and biology. After receiving the Psychology Department Undergraduate Thesis Prize, she continued her studies at Harvard, where she obtained a master's in psychology with a focus on cognition and brain and behavior. She then started her work at Yale University as an assistant professor in psychology and cognitive science, while simultaneously doing her own research on the human mind. In 2014, she became head of Yale's best residential college, Silliman. Now, she continues to work with students both personally as a dean and academically as a teacher of Yale's most popular course, Psychology and the Good Life, which forces students to question what truly makes people happy. She's known globally for her work and has various published journal articles, as well as awards for her expertise in her field. In the spare time that she has, she works on her own podcast, The Happiness Lab, which is charted U.S. podcasts. I could not be more excited to speak to her today about anxiety, happiness, and the ways in which students and faculty can support one another at high-achieving schools. Dean Santos, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. So my first question is something that I like to ask basically everyone that I interview about their specific fields, um, which is why did you originally decide to study psychology and what about the subject really interested you? Yeah, so I got interested, I think I've always been interested in psychology. Like I was the kind of annoying kid who like always wanted to know like what the adults were thinking or talking about. So I think I've just always found human behavior really fascinating. Um, I started getting interested in psychology academically when I got kicked out. I got like lotteried out of a class that I really wanted to take my freshman year when I was in college. I wanted to take this like pre-law class, which is kind of like the constitutional law class we have Mm -hmm. at Yale. But then I didn't get a spot and I was like, you know, devastated in the way that all first years are devastated when they don't get into the class they wanted. And my advisor, who I now know is probably just trying to like get me out of her office, was like, well, why don't you take intro psych? Like, you know, lawyers need intro psych, like just do that. And then I took it and I was just really hooked. And then soon after that, I started like doing research in that professor's lab. And, you know, I guess the rest is history, as it were. I love to hear that because that happened to me first semester with an English class. I really wanted to get in, didn't end up getting in, and then ended up in clinical psychology. And it was my favorite class of the semester. See, the serendipity, I think we we design our lives to kick out the serendipity, but actually more of it would make us happier, maybe find more meaning, all those things. Yeah, it's, it's those little moments that end up being really beneficial in the long run. So why did you decide to bring the happiness class to Yale? And what about the environment of Yale makes this class so important? Yeah, so the the happiness, so my real research isn't necessarily about well-being. I was trained in this field of comparative cognition and sort of studying what makes the human mind unique and did that at Yale for like over a decade. Um, I, I switched to happiness in part when I became a head of college at Silliman. So when I started this role, I was so excited to like be around college students and just see college student life. And it, it is awesome. I mean, I think Silliman life is awesome. But in that new role, like, I just started to see so many, like, of the da- downsides, right? So many students just feeling stressed or anxious, like, real clinical issues that students were facing, like having panic, panic attacks or even suicidality. And it just made me realize that Yale wasn't giving students the skill sets they needed for this kind of resilience. You know, we care so much that you get to Yale and you have a whole set of extracurriculars and so on, but no one asks like hey did you develop skill sets to 
deal with like you know downsides have you you know figured out ways to talk to yourself self-compassionately you know do you have skills when things are really stressful to like kind of self-regulate and emotion regulate and it it just felt like we were letting our students down because students didn't necessarily come in with those skills and we weren't finding ways to provide them. So the second the good life class was really my attempt to say, okay, like what, what can my field teach students right. about the science of happiness so they can feel better? So that was how it started. And then it kind of went a lot more viral than I expect. You know, it was supposed to be a new, like, you know, mid-level psych class. I thought like 30 students would take it. And then the first time I offered it, you know, a thousand, over a thousand students showed up like, you know, it like broke the like course search thing because the, the, you know, instead of going into the hundreds, it had to go to the thousands. And so they had to like deal with the IT issue of like, it's never been in the thousands before. And so it was all very surreal. But, you know, I think the fact that students were so, so often coming to the class and that so many students want to take the class, it shows that students, I don't know, they're like voting with their feet. They don't like this culture of feeling stressed mm-hmm. and anxious. I think a lot of them want evidence-based strategies to figure out what to do to be better too. No, and I think that's so important, especially at a school like Yale, because, you know, I think about the fact that I almost needed a certain level of anxiety in order to get here because it was part of the reason that I worked so hard. And now I'm sort of here, and I think that a lot of other kids sympathize with that anxiety that I felt. And now we're all together, and it's a much more collaborative place in high school, at least from my own experience. But we're all now sort of working together to get through that anxiety and I think that it's so important to really have a space where you can actually learn techniques instead of just you know having someone tell you that it's going to be okay yeah and I think you know you need these techniques in part because I think you know so many of the students had the same training that you had right where to get here you had to sacrifice your sleep you had to sacrifice your social connection you had to feel anxious about grades or depressed if you didn't succeed right I Mm -hmm. think so many students had the path to kind of not just they didn't get the right strategies they almost got bad strategies like right. kind of fighting against the habits that students needed to kind of get admitted to a place like this um but more importantly i think you know i think our instincts are really wrong i think students aren't torturing themselves you know because they're you know like these awful like masochists right i think t- students think that you have to engage with classes in this really anxious way to get the right grades to get mm-hmm. a good job to get the perfect salary to live the perfect life And I think what we see from the research is that that's just not the case, that kind of engaging in a way that feels so stressful is counterproductive. It's going to make you learn less. It's going to make you do worse. And it's not necessarily going to lead to the life students think, you know, they're going to get. And so I think that's one of the reasons a class is so important is like we have to fight these bad intuitions to feel, to, to realize what really would lead to a fulfilling, you know, successful life. That makes sense. And sort of off of what you just said, how do you think from both the teacher perspective and the student perspective, we can sort of change the way we look at classes? Like, is it, you know, getting rid of timed testing, which I know is just, you know, an automatic source of anxiety. I I mean, I don't know, sort of just throwing ideas out. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, there's all kinds of things. There's what we need to change at the structural level in terms of how Yale works, how admissions work, you know, Mm -hmm. lots and lots of thoughts on that. Um, But I think there's just things that students need to change at the individual level. For example, just realizing that good grades won't make you happy. You know, Mm -hmm. there's evidence for a a negative correlation between grades and well-being and college. That is so crazy to me. Uh, But, I mean, you kind of see it, right? Of course. Like, the students who work the hardest are not necessarily the happiest. There's also a negative correlation between grades and self-esteem and a negative correlation between grades and optimism. 
And then you might say, well, you know, you're miserable in college, but then, you know, you get this perfect job or you get into the perfect medical school or you get your Rhodes Scholarship or whatever you're going for. But then you look at people who've gotten those things and they're not happier either. Mm-hmm. So I think that Yale students sometimes think, oh, okay, you know, I get it. I'm miserable now. Maybe that's, you know, good grades aren't helping me right now, but in the future, you know, I'll get there and I'll be happily ever after. And this is, this involves a bias that we talk about in my class. It's called the arrival fallacy, which is kind of like the happily ever after fallacy, right? Like mm-hmm. I'll finally get into medical school and then I'll be happy. Right. But in practice, you know, when you get that, you're just on to the next kind of goal that you're going for and never really feeling happy along the journey. Yeah. And that actually is sort of perfect for the next question I wanted to ask you, which is that, you know, basically since, I mean, I'll speak for myself since I've been in high school, I have sort of been like seeing my next steps and sort of how I want my future to lay out. And I think that, you know, my freshman year of college has actually been the first time in a while I've been able to, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like really live in the moment. Um, So how do you think we encourage a student body that sort of has such an intense environment like Yale students to actually really enjoy the moment instead of focusing on next steps? Yeah, well, it's hard because, you know, you can kind of lead a horse to water but you can't you know so I think right thing, you know what I've tried to do is just show the findings right you know how much people regret not being in the moment when they spend college in the kind of anxiety state that so many students here spend it in you know showing you data that you're not making the present moment happier by mm-hmm. worrying about your grades but you're also not going to after this place get a life that feels better and so you know part of it's kind of seeing the bad strategies and the the negative effects of the bad strategies but I think part of it's also giving you tools to do that right like it's hard to be in the present moment we've got phones that are distracting us we've got you know the social comparison that's coming up that's making us feel inadequate and making us want to like you know stress even more I think we really need tools like things like practicing meditation, things mm-hmm. like strategies for putting your phone away when it's making you feel anxious, things like just sleeping more so you have the emotional resilience and the bandwidth to kind of deal with all of the stress. So, yeah, I, th- I just think these practical strategies, learning that, hey, they're evidence-based, you can use them, but they're also practical. They're things that anybody can do to kind of put in better habits and feel better. Right, so it's kind of teaching people that, you know, happiness can almost be practiced in the same way that, like, math can be practiced or, like, you can study for a test. You have to prioritize that just as much. Yeah, and I think that's really what, if, if there's a big message in my class, it's that, like, happiness is possible, but it takes work. You right. Know, it's just like, you know, so many Yale students are athletes or care about their bodies and want to get fit and go to the gym, right? And so you put all this work in the gym, you eat healthy, you know, you train, and you get this outcome, you know, our mental health works like that. It just doesn't just happen, right? You have to put in work to do that better. And I think what students think is like, well, you know, you know, I, I only have time for some amount of work, right? You know, mm-hmm. so I'm working on all my problem sets and I'm taking orgo, then I can't worry about my mental health in that semester. And that also goes against the research because the research shows that if you're prioritizing your happiness, if you're prioritizing positive mood, that's going to have a positive effect on your performance and then that's going to have a positive effect on your grade. So I think people think, oh, I'll achieve academically and then I'll get to happiness. Turns out that's not, that causal path isn't right. Right. But actually if you focus on your mental health and your sleep and your positive mood, turns out that actually leads to performance and better academic performance and that can, you know, then you're already happy and you kind of get the outcome you wanted anyway. So we kind of get the causal arrow of happiness wrong. We think, oh, if I you know, kill myself to get these good circumstances, I'll be happy. Actually, if you focus on your happiness, 
the evidence suggests you're more likely to perform better right. and then you get those good circumstances. It's also this really interesting correlation where I feel like a bunch of us really believe that, you know, success will lead to happiness, but instead maybe like happiness is what makes you successful in the yeah, sense it's where it's like happiness is the yeah. ultimate goal. Totally. Um, and in I its think, own right. You know, honestly, I think, you know, thinking as someone from my generation, I feel like this is a spot where, you know, all of your parents like kind of messed up, like people from my generation mm-hmm. messed up, right? I mean, ultimately your parents just want you to be happy and they're, they're trying to get you to pay attention to these goals in the hopes that it would make you happy down the line, right? So they want you to do your homework in high school because they want you to get into a good college because they ultimately want you to get a good job and learn a bunch of good stuff because they think that's going to make you happy. But in an odd way, sometimes maybe focusing on the happiness now is a way to make sure you get to the happiness, but also achieve all the other stuff that's going to give you meaning and purpose and success. Right. And it sort of makes me curious, you know, what like my children's generation is then going to look like in terms of what people prioritize, you know, like if I'm learning at a young age that happiness is what should be prioritized, like maybe that's something that, you know, the next generation will know better. Yeah. I mean, if I could do one thing with the class if I could train your generation of Yaleys to impart some of these better strategies to your kids so that you know when I'm all old and decrepit and your kids are these legacies you know running around yell Mm -hmm. they have the the skills they need to kind of handle stress and they have a love of learning not an obsession with grades like oh my gosh that would be great so even if I fail your generation if I could ensure the next generation gets these tips that would be awesome yeah definitely And I sort of think that, you know, like even really looking to the future now, I think that a really big source of fear amongst like my peers is fear of failure. Um, And we sort of, you know, restrict our own happiness because we're afraid that it'll eventually lead to disappointment. So what advice would you give to people who think like that? Yeah, well, I think one, one thing we forget is that we have this really robust psychological immune system you know we know about the physical immune system like if bad things come in you know or flu viruses or whatever your immune system will fight it and you'll kind of deal with it turns out we really have a very powerful psychological immune system too when failure crops up you get rejected something bad happens you have all these mechanisms that kick in to make you feel okay and the problem is that we we have what's called immune neglect we don't recognize that our psychological immune system system's going to kick in it will that's what all the evidence suggests you look at people who have you know horrible traumas happen and sometimes they come out of that trauma not just negatively affected but saying that it you know drove a sense of purpose and meaning in life their life that that made them stronger that it Mm -hmm. made them kind of connect better with people this is what researchers call post-traumatic growth we often talk about post-traumatic stress but the evidence suggests you can come out of trauma with growth too um but but we're afraid that that won't happen, right? We're afraid that we'll fall apart with failure. And I think that means so many Yale students avoid it, whether it's, you know, not taking that hard class, not pushing themselves, you know, not asking the person they went out on a date because they're, you know, afraid to get rejected. Right. Like people steer away from these risky things when even if the risky thing went as badly as it possibly could, you're just probably going to be fine. Like that's, that's the power of your psychological immune system. But we don't realize we have this ally we don't realize we have this tool that's just going to make us feel okay um so you know this is one of the lovely things about teaching this class where i teach students about the psychological immune system and immune neglect and you know you got to take more risks i think knowing it doesn't immediately give you the intuition that it's going to be okay but it gives you some rational understanding that you could try to push your boundaries a little bit more right 
I mean, it's so interesting to me. I think that really everything you've said thus far is something that I wish I I knew, and I'm sure, you know, my peers also wish they knew. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, not every single person at Yale is able to fit into your class. Mm -hmm. But would you, like, would your ultimate goal to have some kind of, like, health and wellness class be a part of some kind of mandatory curriculum at schools? Yeah, I mean, I think I would love it to be a mandatory class at Yale. Not necessarily my class, but some sort of skills building to get right. with stress and so on. I would honestly love to get it in earlier. You know, one of the, the big grants we have now is to try to figure out high school and middle school versions of this curriculum mm-hmm. that we can kind of give away, you know, to teachers for free. So that, you know, again, my hope would be that I wouldn't have to teach Yale students these content because, like, they get it a little bit earlier before they came in. And so, you know, because I sometimes give talks at high schools and present this stuff, and, and students will really get angry. They'll say, you know, like, you've come in and told me all this stuff about grades and success, but literally every other moment that I've had in high school has reinforced the opposite message. Right. right? Like, why are we not hearing this? You know, why didn't we learn these skills earlier? So, yeah, I would love to teach this to younger and younger kids. Yeah, and I think that, you know, as you said, if it's something that needs to be practiced, like, you know, the earlier you start practicing on it, the better you're going to be at it by the time you get to college. Exactly. And I think you get off the cycle because I think one, you know, this is especially true for Yale students. What happens is, you know, you mentioned being anxious about grades and stuff in high school and feeling like your high school promoted that. Ultimately, you kind of got this, like, in theory, reward for all that anxiety, right? Like, right. you got into Yale, you got the thing that everybody was fighting for, right? And so now it's like, well, why would you abandon that strategy now? You just exactly. It, for it, it right? almost feels validated. Yeah, um, but it's like at what cost, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, there's this really interesting balance that sort of we all need to learn to find between, you know, like, I might be the very happiest version of myself if... I decided not to do homework and, you know, was just always with friends. But, you know, that isn't going to give me a certain level of long-term happiness. And, you know, probably after about two weeks, I would get bored of doing absolutely nothing. So it's, it's really interesting to sort of think about, like, balance and, you know, prioritizing your own happiness. Um, but I also sort of was wondering, not that, like, you know, one person's happiness comes at the expense of others, but, like, we're really told to support one another and, you know, sometimes even to the extent where we're really tired but, you know, someone wants help with math and, you know, you get out of bed, you help that person with math. Uh, So this is basically a long-winded way of leading to my next question, which is, you know, sort of at what point do you prioritize your own happiness even though you might be contributing to the stress of others? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a couple ways to answer this. So one is... One is that I think another misconception we have is that when we think of our own happiness, we think the best path to that is something like, you know, self-care, like treat yourself, like focus on yourself, self, self, self. But when you look at what very happy people are self-reporting, that's not what they're saying. Very Mm -hmm. happy people tend to volunteer more often. They tend to control for income, give more money to charity. They tend to be really more other oriented, right? Like they're not just like me, me, me. Mm -hmm. They're, They're kind of doing for others. And so I think if we embrace that, that like the path to self-care is kind of reaching out to other people, once the, you know, what the research would suggest is that that's a path that's going to make you feel a little bit happier and then you'll have more bandwidth to do for others and on and on and on. Right. I think we sometimes mess up the extent to which doing for others can give us a little bit more Mm -hmm. happiness. I think another problem is that 
you know, one, one question I might have for Yale students is like, well, why are you not, you know, given those data, like, why are you not doing more things for others? And I think students will be like, I'm too busy. Like, I'm too overwhelmed. I don't have any time, right? I haven't kind of put my own oxygen mask on first. Right. And so I think that's another thing we realize is that, you know, we're becoming less, like, and sometimes moral people just because we're so busy. Um, right. And this is borne out by some very famous psychology studies. There's a really famous study done at a Princeton seminary where they had these like seminary students or people who are training to become priests. Um, they're in the study where they have to go off and give a sermon about like the, the, like the parable of the good Samaritan. And they set up this study where as they're late and running over, cause some, some of these, you know, wannabe priests were put in a condition where they were like late to get to this talk that they were supposed to give. They run by a person who's like, you know, bleeding on the street who needs help. And what you find is the more the priests are in a rush, the less they're able to stop and help this person in need when they're rushing off to give a like talk about the Good Samaritan, which is like how you're wow. to stop and help people, right? And this has kind of been born now, and this was like an old study, you know, one of these like old famous social psychology studies, but this has been borne out in more recent stuff. If you look at people's level of busyness, that predicts how little they're going to do simple things like recycle or engage in sustainability practices. If you make people more busy, it makes them less likely to help someone else. Like, you know, and so I, th- I think one of the things we're seeing is that Yellies don't have the bandwidth to do for others, help someone with their math homework or something, just because they're so personally overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But then that becomes a vicious cycle. Well, then you're personally overwhelmed and you don't feel good. And, and you want help. Like, you and... want help, right? And you're not able to get the benefit of either getting the help or helping others, right? Because we know as if you did for others, and kind of stop being so selfish, that would improve your well-being. So these things become vicious cycles. And I do think one of the things that would really improve Yelly's well-being is if they took things off their plate, like if they just had less stuff to do. Um, one interesting thing, and this isn't borne out in research data, it's just kind of anecdotally, you know, the, the fall of when the class of 2024 first got to campus, this is like fall of 2020. Right. When, you know, there was just, you know, I think students now think, oh, there's all these COVID restrictions, but it was really restricted then. Like there was like, you know, all Zoom classes and no athletics and all these things. Um, I think students were, I, I thought students were going to have like really awful mental health situations on campus. But in fact, students, I think, were a little chiller because there wasn't like a million parties or a million acapella rushes or a million things going on. Like, you just had a little bit more free time. Like, there was less FOMO because there was, like, less things to miss out right. on. Like, nothing was happening. But it also meant that you weren't as time-pressured, as time-famished. And oddly, I think that was helpful for students, which is an irony because we don't want to, like, cancel all athletics or have no parties or, like, right. nothing to do on campus. But having too much of a good thing can be just as bad. And it's interesting because, you know, that sort of comes back to that idea of balance. And, you know, I'm even thinking about the fact that, you know, I have acapella rehearsal right after this. And then, you know, I have to, you know, do a hundred page reading and it definitely like takes you out of a moment in a certain sense Mm -hmm. that I think definitely not only increases anxiety because you're always thinking about it, but also just like decreases happiness of being able to like be in a moment with someone, which I think is something that's really great about college. And That's definitely something I noticed during online school because I was, you know, in online school for the majority of my senior year, especially first semester senior year. And, you know, despite the fact that I saw my friends less, like, I was a much happier person because I had fewer hours of classes in a day. I was, you know, spending 
more time being like a better member of my family, you know, helping cook and mm-hmm. other other things that are just like, you know, a part of being a family. And I think that, you know, I'd sort of forgotten that end of junior year when I was just, you know, get home, work for seven hours, go to bed. And I think, you know, again, this, you know, it, it forces us to think, well, what's the right balance for all of us, right? Like, you know, let's not wish another, you know, COVID you know, right. full Zoom semester when anything has to get shut down. But, you know, what are you going to take off your plate? Like, what, you know, what realistically, like knowing that you can't do everything, that putting everything on your plate means you won't be present, you won't enjoy right. the journey, you're you know, working on your problem set, thinking about the acapella thing you're supposed to do, and you're, you know, you're constantly kind of fast-forwarding and not being there, what are you going to take off your plate so your plate is simple enough that you can enjoy all the things there? It's a hard, it's a super hard problem, you know, as someone, you know, I'm you know, planning to take this year off where I can kind of deal with the fact that I've had too many things on my plate. Mm-hmm. And even as a happiness expert, even knowing all the research, even knowing that I am somebody that could do that in a way that no one else can, because I'm like, look, I'm practicing what I preach, you have to let me do this was still really hard you know to admit that it's hard to give yourself the self-compassion to do that definitely and I think that unfortunately there's also like I'll speak for myself like you know I had a really really hard time dropping from five to four courses this semester Mm -hmm. because I thought it was a thing to take five courses I noticed myself feeling really overwhelmed. You're the only first year who pushed herself to do that, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Like, totally uncommon to take on too many classes. It it took me weeks to drop a class I knew I was going to drop from about the first week in it. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely a really sort of eye-opening experience for me. But let me ask you, are you super happy that you dropped the class? Do you have much more bandwidth? Um, I have much much more more bandwidth. I now um, only have three classes a day instead of four, so life is, it it genuinely is a really big difference, and I think that I really learned a lesson uh, in terms of just, like, trusting my gut and, you know, knowing if I'm not happy in something and there's something I can do to change that, I should definitely do it. Um, So while we're on the topic of the pandemic, I did sort of want to discuss this in the sense that... The pandemic clearly brought about an entirely new wave of anxiety. So how can students sort of learn to re-enter the world even though it doesn't look like it did pre-pandemic? Yeah, well, I think what one one strategy you really need to engage with is to just, like, acknowledge, like, it's an anxious time. Like, it's normative to feel a little bit uncertain and scared right now. And I think this is something people get wrong about the science of happiness. Like, people think that the science of happiness is, like, toxic positivity, right? Like, people will even make fun of my class like this. It's, like, happy, happy, happy emoji all the time. But, like, a true life of happiness, right, a true life of flourishing allows for negative emotion because sometimes negative emotion is, like, normative. Like, Mm -hmm. that's what you're supposed to be. Like, when there's horrible injustices in the world, you should get pissed off, right? When there's a global pandemic, you should be scared. You should feel frustrated and uncertain. And so I think part of it is to acknowledge, like, it is a scary time. Mm -hmm. I can feel a little anxious. But you deal with that anxiety in a way that's a little bit more accepting, right? Like, and this is sort of the premise of mindfulness, that you kind of allow things to be there just as they are. And there are wonderful techniques for, for what's called urge surfing, where you... You know, if you're feeling anxious, like, all right, I'm just, my body's feeling anxious. What does this feel like right now? How can I investigate this feeling? And just, can I just let this feeling be there for a couple minutes? Like, can I just sit with it? And that kind of practice of allowing the feeling that research shows 
like, we'll just let it take its course, right? It's different than suppressing it and trying to distract yourself and just like, you know, either take a substance or go on your phone or screw around or distract yourself with a video game or Netflix. Um, like those kinds of things are not as productive as just, you know, allowing those emotions to be there. So, so I think one strategy for dealing with anxiety is like, yeah, we're going to be anxious. Like, let's not fight it. That's, that would be normal. You're just like normal human. But how can you use evidence-based strategies to navigate that negative emotion, listen to it, um, give it its space, but not be too overwhelmed by it? Yeah, and I honestly think that's something I've thought about a lot, especially in sort of recent weeks of, you know, feeling very anxious that, like, the global scope of the, the world, world is, is changing. World War III. Yes, and yeah, that like there's yeah. absolutely yeah. nothing I can do to stop this. Yeah. And Normative it's terrifying. Totally. Normative to feel scared, normative to feel sad, normative to feel angry on behalf of Ukrainians, right? All these emotions are a thing you're supposed to feel in the face of this, but those have to go somewhere, right? Like you can't just be like, all right, powering through the problem state, I can't deal with that. You need to give these emotions some space, right? Um, you know, because, you know, emotions, there's a lot of metaphors about like pressure cookers or, you know, emotions are like, I've heard holding a beach ball underwater, right? You're trying to hold it underwater, but it's going to like come crashing out. And so, yep. If you just let it float on the water, it wouldn't be so bad. And so I think we need to get better about letting our negative emotions float, like allowing them to be the way they're going to be. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's something really scary about that, just in terms of like it, it almost feels more normal to just, you know, go about your life and pretend that it's not happening, uh, but that eventually it just catches up and sort of consumes you. So if you can avoid, if you can avoid that, it's definitely worth it. Yeah, and I think, you know, just realizing that not all moments need to be perfect or good, you know, that you can learn something from these negative emotions, that they're part of common humanity, that like, you know, as awful as it feels, you know, again, to be kind of watching what's happening politically in the world right now, that it it is a thing that connects us with one another, you know, right. at this time where, you know, it's so hard to connect, like, these are things, these even these awful moments make us human in a way that can really give us a sense of meaning and purpose. Definitely. So one final question that I wanted to ask was ways in which just like peers can help each other practice happiness on a daily basis and ways yeah. that individuals can practice happiness on a daily basis. Yeah, well, you know, my, my list of the practices that really improve well-being are first and foremost social connection, like reach out to someone, connect, talk to somebody in the dining hall, talk to a dining hall worker in the dining hall, like just connect with other people. So much evidence that even if you talk to a stranger, you boost your positive emotion. Mm -hmm. um, second is to find ways to be present, right? Like just like take time to savor and not be distracted when you're eating a meal, when you're doing your homework, when you're walking through campus and noticing the beautiful spaces, noticing that it's springtime out. I was watching the daffodils like start poking out and like the sides of the courtyard and stuff. Like just actually taking time to be present can be really powerful. And strategies for doing that are finding ways to, you know, regulate how much you're on your technology or even mm -hmm. simple practices like, like meditation. Um, final strategy that I think is super important for college students is just sleep. <laughs> like, I actually think we'd solve a lot of the college student mental health crisis if you could just sleep. And with that, I think you get like, oh, but then I can't study. And then we go back to like, well, maybe you need to a little do some regulation on your anxiety about the grades when you hear your evidence like well it's not going to make you happier there's also evidence for example that your college grades won't correlate very much with your up outgoing salary so like you know they're not going to correlate with the kinds of things that happen later so if you can just take a breath and 
you know, allow yourself to like be okay if your grades aren't perfect, 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 then you can get some sleep and then you're really going to see a mental health boost. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today and all of the skills that you've taught me. I really appreciate your time um, and I'm excited that we got to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Awesome.